So guys, why don't you all grab a seat. Um, you open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 6. Um, I'm going to read a couple of verses, um, verse 13 and verse uh, 16, I believe is what it is. Um, if you guys don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand. We have ushers that would be happy to get you a Bible. So what we've been looking at over the past several months are really two main categories of concepts that we've been looking at. On the one hand, we've been looking at what Paul describes as spiritual warfare, um, the idea that even though Jesus rescued us and saved us, that there was this uh, demonic dark force Paul describes as the devil that is at work seeking to sabotage and undo all the good that God is wanting to do and really has brought about brokenness and evil and is really the main cause or uh, influencing agent behind all the evil within this world, that, that he influences people's hearts and minds and thoughts towards corruption. That's really what the Bible describes as the source of brokenness and evil within this world. And it's not just that you know, the devil is to be blamed for all of this, that, but that humanity, human beings, are complicit with the devil. In other words, we allow ourselves to be influenced by uh, darkness rather than light, influenced by death rather than life. And yet this is what we see. So Paul describes this as uh, warfare. But he also describes this that to those that are in Jesus, those that follow Christ, those that have been given new life, have been also outfitted with, with what Paul describes as a wardrobe. And it's basically a spiritual wardrobe that helps us in the midst of battle. So that when we find ourselves in those moments of the heat of the battle, where we find ourselves maybe giving into corrupting influences, because, you know, if you're a Christian, it doesn't make you in any way, shape, or form immune from corrupting influences. It's one of the reasons why. Sometimes people are like, why do Christians do such bad things, right? You guys ever notice that sometimes? Like, Christians do dumb things, sometimes evil things, sometimes just annoying things, um, because even though that a person that is in Christ is saved, meaning in ultimate sense their salvation has been uh, given by God, we still live in this world. We are still influenced by demonic activity. It's one of the reasons why maybe we uh, flare up in our tempers or we refuse to forgive people and we hold grudges or why we cheat or why we do things that basically sometimes when they get turned inside out and get publicity, um, people look at the church and like the church is messed up and filled with hypocrites. And the answer to that is yes, it is. It's absolutely messed up and filled with hypocrites. And yet the reality is, is that we are a community of people that have been shown grace in spite of our regular and repeated and chronic hypocrisy. And this is what the Bible describes. So Paul says, though, that we've been given this wardrobe so that rather than constantly giving into these uh, demonic activities um, that are basically bringing about corruption and that bring about our own brokenness, that we can actually withstand these things. And so when we arm ourselves or equip ourselves, if you would, in these various types of spiritual wardrobe, then we find ourselves, the way Paul says, that you'll be able to stand strong. The idea of standing is the posture of readiness as opposed to, say, lying on your back as a posture of complete vulnerability or weakness. So this is what Paul is describing uh, to us over the past several weeks. But what we'll take a look at this morning is what Paul outlines or describes as the helmet of salvation. So I'm going to read two passages to you, beginning at verse 13 of chapter 6, and then we'll jump down to about actually verse 17. That's what we'll look at. So first of all, verse 13, he says, Take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand within the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, and then in verse 17 he says, take up the helmet of salvation. 
So what Paul is describing now is the helmet of salvation. We've looked at like the breastplate of righteousness. We will look at like the sort of the spirit. So what Paul's identifying or describing is what's commonly known as or identified as a Roman soldier in his all, you know, military and militaristic type gear. Paul's probably thinking about this. There's probably also passages or hints out of the book of Isaiah that Paul's thinking about. But um, as Paul is going through this, he's basically saying to those that are followers of Jesus that even though you are a follower of Christ, you will have and will encounter moments of pushback that's called spiritual warfare. But there is also the possibility whereby you can rise and be strong in the midst of that by applying what Paul describes as uh, this spiritual wardrobe breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, uh, the belt of truth, all of these other things. So we've been looking at that over the past several weeks. But particular today, we'll look at the subject of the helmet of salvation. So again, obviously, when you think about a helmet, um, we typically think of something that protects your head, which if that's what you're thinking about, then you are absolutely right on track, because I think that's exactly what probably Paul was thinking about as well, is that something in our head, meaning the way that we think, how we process information, the way our minds oftentimes um, can either control us or, you know, with, with good thoughts and leading us to good paths of uh, life-giving activity and fruitfulness and flourishing, or our minds can take us down paths of despair and darkness and depression. Uh, can I get a witness, right? Anybody ever go into those moments? And I think what Paul is saying is that he's given us this helmet of salvation, So that however and whatever this helmet of salvation is, when properly understood, when properly applied, actually uh, helps us to withstand these dark ideas or thoughts or thinking that can oftentimes take us down paths of destruction. So first of all, the question I want to ask, really just two questions we'll take a look at. One is this question of really what is salvation? Like what does Paul think about, what is in Paul's mind when he's throwing out this word salvation? What I've discovered oftentimes when in most Christian circles, when you, if you were to ask the question, what is salvation? I think most Christians would typically give an answer something along these lines. Salvation is Jesus saving me, saving, saving me from my sin. And you would be absolutely correct in that answer. However, not complete. That's not, that's not the fullness of what salvation is in the Bible. It does involve that. It's not less than what I would describe as personal salvation, But it's far more than that, meaning God is not just simply focused on your interaction with Jesus. He is very much so interested in that, Um, but he's also interested beyond that, that God has what uh, Paul would describe in Romans chapter 8, if you want to kind of get a little bit of a snapshot or a trailer or a a preview of what God has in mind with regard to this concept of salvation, just read Romans 8. It's absolutely amazing. It's almost like this pinnacle. It's like Paul taking us to the Mount Everest of God's intentions For all humanity. It's not just human beings. It's all creation that Jesus is in the process of restoring and healing and delivering. So the thing that I really wanted to focus on first is really the subject, uh, the question, try to answer uh, really what is salvation. In the New Testament, the word that's used for salvation is uh, a word that we actually get another word from, uh, soteriology, soterios uh, is actually a Greek word. And then if you've ever talked with people that are a little bit interested in theology, they might throw out concepts like, well, I like the study of soteriology. And you're like, what does that mean? Like, that's a, you're, you're really smart. Like, what does that mean? And really what soteriology means is the study of 
salvation. Like when people talk about soteriology, what they're actually talking about is the, 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 the way in which God saves. How has God set forth the process or the reality of what salvation is? So this particular word is used oftentimes throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament, only a handful of times. Throughout the Old Testament, it appears in a lot of different ways. And the words that typically are used are translated to define the word soteriology or actually the Hebrew word that's oftentimes rendered uh, here in the New Testament, salvation or saving, ironically, is actually uh, the Hebrew word uh, that we derive the name Jesus from. It's Yeshua, that salvation, God saving, God intervening, actually uh, is closely linked to the very name by which Jesus uh, is his mission. And we'll kind of get more into that in just a moment. I kind of uh, just gave you guys a little bit of a, uh, what do you call it? I just, I just broke everything for you. So that's, uh, hopefully it all makes sense. But the reality is, is that Jesus is the embodiment of God's salvation. So the point that I want to really kind of unpack is, again, in a broader question, like what is salvation? What is Paul thinking about? What was on Paul's mind when he was talking about this? And I was, as I was kind of preparing for this, um, going through this, I was writing out my notes. I'm thinking, this is going to take me a good 15 minutes to describe this. And or I actually came across this really great video on YouTube. I'm just going to actually let this little video, which is about four minutes, very succinct. And it has animation, which does a far better job than me, even though you're not going to get the animation of me flailing my arms. You'll get the animation of a really great video. So I'm going to let this video be showed. We'll turn off all the lights so you guys can see it really good. So here we go. There's this crazy story at the beginning of the Bible. We have Adam and Eve, and they're in the Garden of Eden. And everything in this garden is great. It's exactly as it should be. Except there's this one tree that they're told by God not to eat from because it's dangerous and it will kill them. So that's it. Uh, avoid this fruit tree and we're fine. Right. It seems pretty simple. But in this garden, there's a snake. And it starts telling a different story. It says that if you eat of this tree, it's not going to kill you. In fact, it's going to make you become like God. And Adam and Eve, they believe the snake and they eat the fruit. And because of this, the goodness of the garden is tragically lost and evil and death enters into God's good world. Now, why is there a talking snake in the garden? I mean, this thing is a problem. Yeah, it's very strange. And even more strange is the fact that the Bible doesn't say why or how this thing even got there. It just presents the snake as this creature who's in rebellion against God and that wants to get other people to doubt God's goodness and lead them on a path towards death. And so whatever this snake is, it's the source of evil that pervades our world and our lives even still today. But there is some hope because right here in the story, God makes this really interesting promise to Adam and Eve. That someone is going to come in the future, a son of Eve. And this guy's going to come and he's going to crush the serpent's head and destroy evil at its source. However, during this battle, the serpent is going to bite this guy's heel. So it's like a mutual destruction. Yeah, it's this very strange but beautiful promise. And it's just left hanging there until the next key moment in the story when God singles out this guy named Abraham and says that through his family, goodness and blessing is going to be restored back to all of the nations of the world. And as we follow this family, we get to one of Abraham's great grandsons, this guy named Judah. And he receives this promise that a king is going to come from his line and that the whole world's going to follow this king and he's going to bring peace and harmony and there'll be lots of food and wine and milk and vineyards and it's going to be awesome. The first king that we meet from the line of Judah is a guy named King David. 
And he's a hero. Maybe he is the snake crusher. But it turns out that David is infected with the same evil as the rest of humanity. He never crushes the snake, just the opposite. However, God makes a promise to David that this king is going to eventually come from his line. But as you go on in the story, one by one, each generation of his sons, they're just total chumps. They give in to the snake, they choose evil, they go after money and sex and power and following other gods. Things get so bad that they run the nation of Israel right into the ground and the big bad empire of Babylon just takes them out. And so now there are no more kings to even fulfill this promise. So it seems like the whole plan is lost. But during these dark days, there's this crazy group of guys called prophets. And they just kept talking about this coming king and reminding us of the promise that he'll come, he'll defeat evil, he'll restore the garden. Now, one specific prophet, Isaiah, he tells us more about why this king is bitten. Isaiah says that the promised king receives this wound because of humanity's evil and that it kills him. But then all of a sudden he comes back and Isaiah says it's because he suffered this wound that he can now become a source of healing to other people. But the Old Testament ends and the snake-crushing king that everyone's been talking about never shows up. And this is why when the New Testament begins, it introduces us to Jesus of Nazareth. Not as some random guy, but as someone who comes to fulfill these specific ancient promises. Yeah, we learn that he's from the line of David, Judah, and Abraham. And he goes around Israel announcing that the goodness of God's kingdom is here now. And he begins confronting the effects of evil on people by healing them, by forgiving them of their sins and evil. Many people are now believing that this is, in fact, the promised king. But Jesus began telling his closest followers that he was going to become king and bring peace by taking the full effect of humanity's evil into himself. The fatal snakebite wound. Exactly. And so it seems like the serpent wins. And this story actually would be a tragedy except for what happens next. Jesus rises from the dead. And now Jesus has the power over evil and death for himself. And so the rest of the New Testament is then making this claim that Jesus's power over evil and death has now become available to us to begin confronting the effects of evil in our lives. But even still, death and evil are a real problem in our world all around us. And so the story of the Bible ends by describing this future day when Jesus comes back and he finishes the job. He destroys the snake once and for all and he restores the goodness of the garden here on earth. So... That's good, huh? Wasn't that good? It was so good. I, I watched it, and I'm like, ah, salvation is so amazing. Like, our God is awesome. Like, this is so good. And, and this, is, this, is the, this is the good news. This is the element of what Paul's really talking about, is that we have this salvation. It's a helmet of salvation that if we understand what it is and apply it to our lives, it has this impact, this effect upon our lives. Let me give you a couple examples of this. So throughout the Old Testament... There are these depictions of salvation. Probably around 78 times this particular word, uh, Yeshua, is actually used to describe the element of salvation. Or another word that I actually really like is deliverance um, or uh, 
God intervening upon on behalf of his people. Uh, rescue is another word that I really love to think about the idea of salvation, because really that's what salvation is, is it's rescue. We, use the word, we don't really use the word salvation, I should say, very often in today's vernacular, but a word that is very similar to that is the idea of rescue. We know what it means to be rescued. Uh, what it implies is that in and of yourself, you are this passive agent, and you don't have the ability in and of yourself, in your own efforts, in your own uh, goodness or strength or moral ability or even money to somehow rescue yourself. You are, in a sense, doomed to whatever the consequences are that you find yourself subject to. But the idea of rescue is that somebody outside of yourself, somebody beyond yourself, comes in and intervenes or imposes himself upon you to rescue you, to help you, you, help you in those moments. And this is really the picture of what salvation is, is that God comes and does something for us we couldn't deserve, we couldn't earn, we didn't have money to do. In a lot of ways, this absolutely runs counter to the prevailing humanistic mentality of our world today. So all of us, whether you know it or not, all of us, we to some degree are great, 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 great grandchildren of what's commonly known as the Enlightenment. And what typically happened there was sort of this great awakening of experimentation and study and research and knowledge and science, where basically humans begin to realize we have so much potential. Look what we can do if we just get the right minds together in the right context with the right amount of resources, in the right amount of ability, in the right amount of time, we can literally solve all of humanity's problems. Does that make sense? And that led it obviously into kind of our more modern world, which is a technological age where we begin to realize and begin to see and think like maybe technology is going to be the savior of people. Maybe the real issues that really bind us and keep us broken and destroyed is we don't know how to communicate to each other. So somebody invents, obviously, uh, the internet, and we're like all of a sudden realizing like, oh, cool, we can talk to each other now. Maybe now problems will be solved. But the reality is even though there is much good on the internet, there is also much wickedness. In other words, the serpent has infiltrated even the internet with that virus, a brokenness. And it goes all the way down. I mean, we think about technology, man. On one hand, technology has been able to be used for such amazing uh, means by which to bring healing uh, to a lot of brokenness within people's lives. But also at the same time, it has become sort of the main source of destruction by way of, you know, weapons of mass destruction. But the point that I would make is this, is that salvation according or contrary to the mindset of the Enlightenment, is not in ourselves. It's not because of what we can do, because we are, for the most part, all infected by this disease. We're all broken. We're all in need of salvation. We're all in need of help. Not just us, but this whole world in which we live in. It's broken. See, what we oftentimes do then is we just sort of push the evil somewhere else because we can't stand to face the evil in our own selves. So we oftentimes project evil upon other people. So what we do is we do what I describe as scapegoating. Scapegoating, not goping. Scapegoating, there we go. Scapegoating is where we find somebody that we don't really like, somebody of different skin color, somebody of different race, somebody of different sexuality, somebody of whatever that's different than us, we make them the cause of all wickedness and evil within our world. And so what we do is we basically try to project upon them the evil, but the reality, the Bible will not let us get away with that. 
because it keeps pointing it back to us and saying, no, we are the ones that have brokenness and wickedness and sin and rebellion in our heart against this good God. In other words, salvation, help, deliverance cannot come from us. It must come from outside of us. And this is exactly what the video pointed out, that throughout the Old Testament, there were these voices called the prophets that spoke forth this coming day when God would intervene, that God would bring salvation. This is why Jesus' name, for example, was so significant. So Genesis 49 verse 18 says this, I will wait for your salvation. Or even Jonah 2 verse 9 says, salvation belongs to God. The implication is that salvation, this idea of rescue, according to these authors and a host of other authors in the Old Testament, was that salvation, deliverance, healing, does not come from within me, does not come from my own power, my abilities, my own money, my own resources, or people that I know. It actually comes from outside of me. This is, this is actually greatly liberating for those of us that maybe find, have found yourself in moments where you have tried and attempted to help yourself and then begin to realize you don't have the goods to help yourself. It's, it's liberating to be able to just simply tap out and say, I don't have the ability to rescue myself, but if God does, then I surrender to him. Whatever his salvation looks like, whatever that's going to entail, I trust that. This is what the Old Testament passages would point to. In the New Testament, we have this really amazing passage out of the book of Luke, because Luke actually is a, what's called a gospel writer. He's telling the story of Jesus, the good news of what, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. But he opens up his book with this really crazy story, and it's about this guy by the name of Simeon. If you're familiar with the story, here's what it says. There's a man in Jerusalem named Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, and he waited for the healing of Israel. And then it says three different occasions, his relationship, this guy Simeon, with that of the Holy Spirit. So whatever Luke's trying to tell us, he's trying to tell us that this guy Simeon had some sort of inside knowledge from God's Holy Spirit, that God was somehow speaking to and then ultimately through this guy Simeon. So whatever Simeon's going to tell us is absolutely authoritative and important to listen to. So here's what Simeon, or the story of Simeon says. Verse 26 says, Then he uh, had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. The word Christ is another way of basically saying God's or the Lord's king. This is basically like the video described that God promised a king. And again, we typically don't necessarily think of kings, but if you think of like a ruler... Rulers in our world, for the most part, oftentimes don't necessarily serve the good of the people. Oftentimes, rulers have this tendency, or this, at least this bad rap, to serve their own pleasures. They take long vacations. They spend a lot of money on themselves. They don't necessarily listen to the voice of the needs of the people. And so what God is saying is that my ruler, my king, will actually do the most greatest good for the people at great expense to himself. Imagine that. And this is what he goes on to say in verse 27. And he came in the spirit into the temple when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. Verse 28 says, then he took him in his arms and he blessed God and he said, Lord, now. So imagine, here's Simeon, this old man, devout follower of Yahweh, all right? Really old guy, full of wisdom, probably imagine like a long gnarly, flowing, white beard. He sees this young infant walk into, and obviously he's not walking, but his mom's carrying him. And so he walks up to this little infant. Can you imagine if you are a mom or a dad and you have a little baby and people come walking up to you and like, can I hold your baby? That's kind of creepy. You're like, um, no, I don't want to give my most precious possession to a complete stranger. But 
Simeon walks up to them and is like, let me, let, me, let me hold your kid. They give him the child. And here's Simeon holding this baby. Here's what he says, verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. In other words, I can die now. Why? And he says, for my eyes have seen Yeshua, your salvation. In other words, the Bible's definition, description of what salvation is, salvation is not just some sort of arbitrary action of God. It's embodied in Jesus. Jesus is the salvation of God. Jesus is God from outside of us, come into our world, into our lives, into our sickness and suffering and the virus that has penetrated and brought death and destruction and consequences way beyond our ability to pay. It's come into us to rescue, to bring healing, salvation. This is what Paul is referring to and talking about. Now, the thing is, is that, again, like I said, most of the time when Christians typically think of salvation, we typically think of one aspect of salvation. We typically think of Jesus merely saving us from penalty of sin or the consequences of our sin. And this is absolutely accurate if this is your depiction. But it's not the entirety of it. So let me give you a couple ways, at least three different ways in which scholars, theologians, Bible teachers, whatnot, for many, many years have kind of identified this or brought up at least three different aspects. On the one hand, uh, it has to do with past, present, and then the future. On the one hand, the past, which is God saved us from the penalty of sin. There's the consequences. And if you need a little bit of uh, insight to think about the penalty or the consequences of sin... Think about it this way. Every single one of us, when we do things that are not in the order of God, they bring, uh, whether intentional or unintentional, consequences that are not good. So let me put this into a very personal context. Let's say, for example, you had a mom or dad that cheated on uh, the other spouse, and then they left, and your mom and dad divorced. Was that painful? It's absolutely painful. If you think back into some of the things that maybe have happened to you, or if you have been raped, or you've been taken advantage of by someone, or you've been dumped by your girlfriend, and these things that can cause great pain, or you felt betrayed, all of these things are painful. And what they are, they're classic examples of when somebody violates you, or offends you, or does something against you, that sin, that action, that misdeed actually has a painful consequence. But you mount these things up in a sense where not only that do they have a horizontal consequence where they cause pain and hurt for you, but at the same time they cause pain and hurt for God because they are not the order by which God intended for them to be. God created us so that we would be life-giving, flourishing, fruitful people, that our lives would be able to be given away to other people and neighbor would love neighbor and there would be a sense of community and love and care for each other. But instead, rather than doing this, we have taken advantage of people. We have caused pain. We are not just simply victims. Some are, but at the same time, we also have the propensity within us to victimize those that have hurt us. So in other words, we are, our, we are all part of this problem. So this is the idea that sin does bring penalty. It brings penalty on a horizontal level. It brings penalty consequence on a vertical level as well. And so what the Bible tells us is that Jesus comes and he bears our penalties. This is what Isaiah the prophet describes, that he was wounded for our transgressions. It's for our sin that Jesus was crushed. So we see not only the past tense, the penalty of sin that we have been saved from, but we also see that God is saving us from the power of sin. This is what oftentimes is identified or described as um, sanctification, that God is helping us, uh, sanctifying us, helping us to walk in a life that is consistent 
or representative of who he is, of his nature. So if you think of it this way, what a Christian is, as we walk and live with God, we are learning to undo certain behaviors that are part of this passing world system of this world. So I'll give you a perfect example one. All right, this world basically says eye for eye, tooth for tooth. If somebody hurts you or wounds you, you have every justifiable reason to hate them back. Right? And yet here's the funny thing is, psychologists, psychiatrists, people that study the mind, they have, they've done enough research to scientifically prove that hatred and unforgiveness is actually deadly. You understand that? They've, they've realized that, that this is it's absolutely destructive. So they could write books and say, so be forgiving and be kind and love everybody. But do you realize that as much as you have good intentions to be like, well, I'm just going to be kind and nice to everybody, how non-empowering that is? We don't have the ability to do that. We need to be shown how to do that. We need to realize, and this is where the gospel comes in. The gospel shows us that we were the offenders before God, and yet he loved us. He forgave us. We were the one with this massive debt that had compound interest on it. We were completely incapable of paying it off, and God wrote it off. The, the word forgive, oftentimes throughout the Old Testament, often carry the connotation of forgiveness of a financial debt. It was sort of co-opted to identif- be identified with sin. But the idea is, is that God has forgiven us, and so to the degree that we begin to realize that we've been forgiven, we begin to then move into this whole new life whereby rather than being um, overtaken by the destruction of this world that says, no, hate people, despise those that take advantage of you, Jesus says, no, no, love those that have done you wrong. And you're like, I can't. Jesus is like, but I did it with you. (laughs) Jesus would say, you know, love your enemy. You're like, I can't. He's like, remember, you were my enemy, but I did not treat you the way that you are prone and wired to treat others. So, God is freeing us from the power of sin, the power that it has over us, that restricts us, that crushes us. I love that image that was on the, on the movie that kind of showed this heart that was basically being choked out by the serpent. That was so powerful to me because that's exactly maybe where some of you guys are at right now. Your heart is dark and broken and embittered because there's a serpent wrapped around it, literally suffocating it. But do you understand the good news of the gospel that Jesus comes to crush the head of that serpent to give you life, to free you from the power of sin? It's really good news. And finally, the presence of sin, that God will one day uh, eradicate and remove the presence, the very presence that is crushing and oppressive and destructive in this world. Uh, it's one of the reasons why in the book of Revelation it describes that one day Jesus will, God will wipe away every tear from our eye and death will be no more and there'll be a new heavens and new earth. All things will be made new. This is the idea of that God will one day save us from the presence of sin. And not just us as individuals, but the, all of creation. As, again, like I said, going back, referencing Romans chapter 8, this is what God will one day do. So in closing, how is this reality like a helmet of salvation? So final question. How is salvation like a helmet? All right, helmet protects a mind that is maybe prone or subject to uh, destructive thoughts. How does salvation then become like a helmet to undo that or to protect you from destructive, corrupting types of thoughts? Well, if you think of it this way, there are two words that oftentimes get repeated often throughout the Old Testament. It's the idea of like remembering and forgetting. Remembering and forgetting. 
um, because we are always prone to remember certain things and forget other things, and to remember bad things and forget good things. But really what we need to do is reverse that order. Remember the good things and forget the bad things. And this is oftentimes what God is saying often, because really if you think of it this way, remembering to what, I just wrote up here, remembering to what extent God has brought rescue into our lives will actually create a heart that's filled with gratitude and assurance. This is what remembering what God has done for us, it floods our heart with a sense of gratitude and assurance. But see, here's our problem. We are always prone to forget. We are prone towards forgetfulness. We are always suffering, if you would, spiritual amnesia, where we forget what God has done. It's one of the reasons why we oftentimes slip into moments of despair, ingratitude, or insecurity. We forget how good God is. We forget what God has done for us. It's one of the reasons why Paul, the apostle, actually wrote this as well in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Paul says this, for the grace of God. And what Paul is basically doing is he's writing to these people saying, remember what God has done. He says this, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age, waiting for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Really what Paul is basically describing is that we need to constantly be reminded of these things. So if you want to think about it this way in closing, the idea of singing or worship really is sort of this double act. On the one hand, it's this act of defiance against our proneness toward forgetfulness. Think about that. What worship is, when we sing songs, we lift up our voices, when we're like, you know what, I don't really care what other people are thinking around about me, I'm just going to verbalize and profess to God how great he is. It's an act of defiance saying, I refuse to let forgetfulness master me. But at the same time, it's also this deliberate act of remembrance whereby I will bring myself to remember the greatness of my God. And when this happens, it's like a helmet. It protects your mind from corrupting thoughts that lead you down pathways of destruction and brokenness and darkness and ruin and despair. Look, if you think of it this way in closing, some of us in this room may or may not actually lack salvation. Meaning you are still in your life trying to figure out how to patch everything together, make it all work, all flow, but you are losing that battle. My encouragement to you would be to at some point tap out, look to Jesus, trust him. The Bible describes it as repentance. Turn from your attempts at self-salvation and turn to the one who actually has the power to give. Some of you lack salvation. Some of you actually just lack Assurance of salvation, meaning here you are, you are saved, you're, you're a Christian, you've been saved, and yet there's a sense of always questioning, because what's happened is that you've been overwhelmed by your actions, by corrupting influences, giving into sin, downloading porn, doing things with your girlfriend or boyfriend you know you shouldn't be doing, cheating on your taxes. I mean, you can go through this whole list of little moral things that we oftentimes add up and accumulate and say, I don't know if I'm a Christian. But really what you need, you need to go back to the salvation and remind yourself the way Paul says that if God has done all these great things for you on your behalf to rescue you, why would you go back to these influences that do nothing but bring brokenness? Turn to God. Trust this Savior that has nothing but good. Trust him. 
Don't believe the lie. Don't forget. Don't give in to the sense of amnesia. Trust this God. Do these defiant acts of remembrance as a way of basically saying, I refuse to let forgetfulness dominate me. Remember who God is. Remember what he's done for you. We're going to respond. I'm going to pray, and we'll have the worship team come on up, and we'll close with a song. If you're here this morning, you've got your little kiddos in the back, just make sure that you go pick them up in about the next couple minutes or so. You're more than welcome to bring them back in here. But we're going to finish with a, with a song, just kind of worship, responding to God. We have communion in the back. I want to encourage you to partake of the communion. We do this every week, and it's a way, again, I think of communion. Communion is basically this amazing act of defiance as well. It's a way of basically saying, I do not belong to this world. I belong to a family whose head was broken for me, whose leader was crushed and bruised for my salvation. This is the family I belong to. It's a way of reminding, remembering the cost of which God has rescued you, that he was broken, he was bruised, he was crushed, so that you who are broken, bruised, and crushed can be made whole. So I encourage you to partake of the community. If you're here this morning and you just need prayer for anything that's going on in your life, maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're still kind of figuring out ways to save and help and deliver yourself. But you want to give up today. You want to finally tap out and just say, I'm going to trust another, trust Christ. Uh, we want to pray for you. If you're here this morning and you just feel crushed and broken, lacking assurance, um, we want to pray for you too. So we'll have some people over off by the cross that want to just pray for you. So why don't we all stand? I'll pray real quick and let's... Let's respond in song, okay? God, thank you for your great love. And God, now as, as an act of uh, love, but also as an act of remembrance and an act of defiance against forgetfulness, we want to sing, we want to lift up our voices and let our, our words declare loudly your great value and your worth.